You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Monday, June 22nd. Dr. Minna, do you have any opening remarks? Uh, nope. Take questions. All right. First question. Hi, can you hear me? Um, thanks for doing that. Um, I just wanted to ask, it looks like um, in Europe, a lot of the, even the countries there that were really hard hit have seemed to have gotten a lot better. Their new cases per day have really fallen. Um, but in the United States, you know, we still have a lot of new cases per day and it's even maybe going back up now in the U.S. So I wonder just kind of what, why you think that divergence happened. Is it just that Europe had you know, stricter lockdowns than we did and stayed in the lockdown longer? Or is there some other explanation? Uh, I think that Europe, a lot of Europe did get cases down much lower than the United States did uh, in many of our states. And so we're now seeing rising cases, particularly in the states that really never got cases to a level that I would consider uh, sort of sufficient for really opening back up. Uh, for example, in Massachusetts, we're trying to, we would like to see cases get down to about two per 100,000 before we really have sort of, uh, as an ideal location and as we're opening back up. And, uh, and so I think that, um, I think that that's essentially what we're seeing is, is people um, uh, sort of preempting this and, and, and opening up maybe too early in the United States uh, far before they, they maybe should if the goal is to, uh, to prevent cases from spreading in the communities. Um, we are a very heterogeneous uh, country. Uh, as a country and across our states, per perhaps we're actually more heterogeneous than uh, across countries in Europe. And uh, we're seeing uh, different states uh, taking into consideration and balancing the costs versus benefits of staying closed. Uh, from a pop from a infectious disease versus economic perspective very differently uh, and I, I think that's really what's driving the cases in the US we're just seeing uh, general I think uh, to a certain extent well not even to a certain extent quite literally where I think we're seeing apathy about um, caring about this virus in many states yeah do you think that makes sense do you think Europe is going to be able to I mean, to stay low, do they need to be able to have, you know, that really good contact tracing and testing in place? I mean, do you feel like they have that or, or is the natural thing that now that they have let up their lockdowns, we're expected to, you know, go back up again? Uh, I think it's a great question. Different countries are certain, have different levels of surveillance in place um, in the same way the different states here do. And uh, I think we're seeing warning signs from across the world at the moment uh, that there are potentially second waves of this virus as places have opened up uh, in, in Beijing, for example, that uh, places that seem to have had cases very well under control are now seeing uh, increasing cases again. Uh, this speaks to the transmissibility of this virus and just how difficult it is to control uh, and to contain without pretty serious um, surveillance efforts in place as places open up, whether it's in Europe, Asia, or the United States or elsewhere, uh, I think we will have a very difficult time stopping uh, continued spread. And this is all in the context too 
of it being the summertime and being, uh, you know, a lull for seasonal viruses. And so it, it is, uh, again, very concerning for the fall. Thanks. Sure. Next question. Um, I recall last week you mentioned uh, masking. Um, and you, if I remember right, you said something to the effect of if we had universal masking, we might be able to contain it just with that one step. And, and I wonder if, um, uh, if there's any research going on about masking specifically and whether you, uh, you do feel that way um, and just kind of the, the, as we open up and talking about rising cases, uh, whether universal masking might be an answer. Yeah, I think um, the research that is, there's, there's research being done. It's, it's pretty difficult research to do to a certain extent because you essentially have to be um, making some assumptions on what transmission would be. You have to either have really controlled groups, which I would say that having a randomized control study of mask wearing probably is not appropriate. Uh, we wouldn't want to ask a group of people to not wear masks. So this makes it difficult to get a very accurate estimates of the true efficacy of masks. Uh, we can use observational studies where people are not wearing masks and, and try to understand what the contacts were and what the transmission levels looked like. Uh, but some more sort of laboratory-based studies do suggest that mask wearing should really cut down significantly on spread. Uh, and um, I do think that alone, if everyone, uh, let's take an extreme example, if everybody wore masks all the time whenever they were around other people, I do think that that alone could uh, have the potential to cut R0 below one and, uh, and keep this virus largely under control. It won't cause the virus to go extinct. It won't cause the epidemics to completely burn out, but it will uh, it would probably uh, greatly reduce transmission. Uh, that said, I think what we're seeing is, uh, I, now I, these are just media pictures and things like that, but when I look across uh, at pictures from various public events lately, it's uh, disheartening to see the numbers of individuals not wearing masks at some events or some you know, parties and things like that. And, um, uh, so I, I worry that the populace might not take to, to wearing masks diligently. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on the politicization of mask wearing. It's something that should never be politicized. It's clearly become a political issue. Um, and that's just, uh, it's just a shame. It's, it's uh, I, I, I mean, I, I don't mind just saying bluntly, I think that it's, being politicized because our president has generally criticized the need for masks for months now, uh, including not wearing them in, you know, in hospitals and, uh, or maybe that was the vice president, I, I forget which one, but, um, you know, that this is something that will have true life and death um, uh, ramifications, in particular, when you're when you're putting thousands of people together, if the if the general theme or is to not wear masks, I, I just think it's um, it's extraordinarily disappointing and and dangerous. Thank you. Next question. Hi, thanks for the availability. Um, 
So there was a nature study out last week um, that I think showed that a sizable number of people are not mounting an antibody response. I think it was 20%. And I've talked to a number of sort of really sick patients and doctors who say, you know, they, they or their patients tested positive for COVID in March or April through a PCR test or based on symptoms, and they've had multiple negative antibody tests, and they're using some of the more reliable tests. So what do you think is going on there? I mean, are, are some people not producing antibodies? Are they just clearing them out quickly? And is there any connection between these people who are still sick like three months later and not producing antibodies? Like, does that make them more susceptible to that? Well, it's a great question. So in general, we know that there, are as a, there is a sizable fraction of people who don't produce antibodies to any given pathogen at, at any given time, even measles. We see uh, against a measles vaccine, which is one of the most efficacious vaccines we've ever developed, people don't uh, always uh, have good antibody responses, including people who have gotten measles. Um, so with that in mind, uh, this is actually not extraordinarily uncommon. Uh, we're just looking for it now. In general, the world has not been uh, looking for antibodies against pathogens during, uh, during the first time that somebody would see them. When we look at birth cohorts, so little children are a good example of, uh, are a good use case because they represent individuals who are, who are getting infected for the first time to a pathogen. So in their, in their personal body, uh, every infection early in life is kind of like a novel pathogen. And we know for them that we see huge bursts of antibodies after infection. And then uh, in, a, in a large fraction of children, they wane very quickly. And what we know is that, uh, that antibodies, uh, every time you get infected, your B cells become plasmablasts, they pump out lots of antibodies, and they generally, um, they exist in the periphery, in your bloodstream. Uh, and then they, they start to uh, uh, atrophy or, or apoptose and go away. Uh, and so you kind of have this big burst of antibodies that contracts, and a very small fraction of those antibody, those antibody-producing cells will migrate into the bone marrow. It's the bone marrow that really keeps the long-lived uh, antibody response for years. And so what we know is that uh, it's very likely that you need repeat exposures to drive good, strong antibody responses that are lasting. This is the same, this isn't surprising for this virus. I think maybe some people are surprised because it hasn't been well explored, but if we think of this just like we think of vaccines or other infections, we know that we have to boost people with vaccines multiple times. Uh, and other viruses that we're used to testing antibodies for, um, by the time somebody's an adult, they might have seen some of these antibodies, some of these viruses 50 or 100 times or more. And so at that point, they might have had built up really good, strong antibody responses uh, over a lifetime. So I think what we're seeing is probably a reflection of normal biology, where when people get infected once, they have a very robust, strong expansion of their plasma cells. Those cells produce the antibodies, and then they undergo the expected contraction, uh, and a small fraction of them will persist to keep creating antibodies. And we have to maybe boost that multiple times in order to get a very durable, high-level antibody response that persists. Um, the, this, of course, is, uh, uh, you know, could be problematic for vaccines to a, to a novel virus, but it all, we also have to recognize that antibody responses, uh, especially the responses that, we are, that we're measuring 
uh, in peacetime or months after an infection, for example, are not the whole story. If you have a large contraction of the cells that are producing the antibodies, maybe your antibody levels do decrease substantially, maybe even to below detectable levels for some people. But it doesn't mean that the immune cells that do that, that the sort of um, the, the immune cells that were trained to recognize, to produce those antibodies initially are not still sitting there quiescent and waiting to expand again. And what I mean by that is when somebody gets re-exposed to a pathogen, they get an anamnestic response, a secondary response that allows those cells that are already preformed, even if they're in very small numbers, to expand rapidly from two cells to a billion cells. And so it doesn't mean that you won't be protected. You've already introduced to your body that pathogen. You've already introduced that immune memory. And so the, the antibodies that are sitting around quiescent, uh, in a quiescent state are not necessarily reflective of your body's ability to protect, even just that's saying nothing about the T cell side of things. Thanks. And, and is there any evidence that there's a connection between these people um, who are still sick like three months later? I think they, they refer to themselves as long haulers, them not producing antibodies? Is there something about being sick longer that results in that or no? Um, so I don't think we have enough data at this point to really pin, uh, pin it on that. It could be, we know, for example, in, in all these measles, again, that's what I often study the most, um, that T cells are really the necessary um, cells, cellular population to drive uh, measles uh, out of the body, you know, to really to clear the infection fully. Uh, even if somebody has a good antibody response, if you have no T cell response, you can uh, you, you can have trouble clearing it. So the same thing might be happening here. I wouldn't pin it necessarily on, um, on just a, a low antibody response detectable and uh, either a neutralizing test or, or ELISA's. Um, it could, but, it, but I think we need a lot more science to understand it better. Thanks. Uh, next question. Uh, hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, I'm wondering if you can speak sort of generally to the state of serological testing across, both across the U.S. and around the world. Um, what, are, what are kind of the ranges of percentages of populations that have been infected, and are there any clear associations between sort of the, the rigorousness of a government's response and, and the proportion of cases that they have? Um. Well, we can look at Sweden as a good example, and that was a, a country that, um, you know, right or wrong, and this is, uh, you know, decided to try to take a different approach. Um, uh, it generally hasn't really worked out well, but uh, they decided not to really close down uh, their country and the economy kind of as other, as their neighboring countries did, and we saw uh, greater, greater population numbers uh, get infected and, and many more hospitalizations and deaths than might be expected based on the rates in the other in the neighboring countries. Um, surprisingly, uh, the seropositivity wasn't immensely, you know, wasn't orders of magnitude higher than the neighboring countries, and um, and that uh, that of course is worrying. It suggests that it just takes a few extra percentage points of people getting infected to really. Uh, to really overwhelm a system, a healthcare system, and, and to kill a lot of people. And that's essentially what we've seen in the United States as well. We have had 
in New York is a bit of an except, well, is a large exception in the U.S. But if we look in Massachusetts, we didn't have our hospitals overrun, uh, but we uh, but we definitely had pressure. There was a lot of pressure on the hospitals, and it was pushing the ceiling uh, a bit. And um, and despite that, we still ended up with probably you know less than five percent overall zero positivity in our state. Um, so that suggests that if you were to add, if you were to double that um, and go to 10% zero positivity, you're still not anywhere near uh, uh, herd immunity, but we would have potentially really thrown our, our healthcare system over the edge uh, had that happened. And uh, so that's just to say, so I, I started going down that road because Sweden was one example that, that didn't have the same kind of closures and they actually didn't have an extraordinarily large number of cases. Um, I think in general, if we look across the country, uh, across the world, I think we'd be very surprised if we saw many places that are over uh, 10% or that are significantly over 10%. Most of the world, I bet, is still below 10% zero positive. Um, I do think that closing did help, uh, but, but maybe, uh, you know, it, it, it helps to keep the outbreaks under control. The, the, again, this virus hasn't spread for very long still. It's still only been months, not years. And so the fact that we even have 10% with closures suggests that this can spread very, very widely. So um, I think we can ex anticipate that the closures have had a significant uh, role in reducing spread. And we have a, some research right now looking at the uh, effectiveness of non-pharmaceutical interventions like closing down. And we have seen a, a decreasing uh, a decreasing R, meaning the transmission of the virus has generally reduced, has, has sort of gone down as states have closed down uh, more and more. Uh, and of course, now we're seeing that as states are opening up, we're seeing spread uh, and the, the effect of R increase again. So I think the, this is pretty convincing evidence overall that closures do have a beneficial effect to, to slow spread, that these responses putting, being, being pushed by governments uh, in general have been uh, useful to stop spread. Uh, it of course always needs to be balanced with the economic hardships that might come from it. Uh, but from an infectious disease public health perspective, I think they are effective. And so given, given that reopening is sort of happening to varying degrees across the country and overall uh, or many parts of the country seem to still not be ready in terms of contact tracing and, and testing systems. I guess what does what does the fact that only five to ten percent of the population is infected or has been infected sort of mean for the future of the epidemic over the or pandemic over the next few months and into the fall? Uh, I would say that it doesn't bode well. Um, we, I, I can't imagine, at least I don't think that's, that our country anyway, it's hard for me to speak to other countries that I don't know the, the social structure as well, but our country in the U.S., I think, um, will probably not make the decision to close down again in the same way that it did. Uh, the hope during that closure was to really buy time to build these, these surveillance systems, build testing capacity. I think by and large that has happened to an extent, uh, more so in some places than others. 
uh, I don't think any place has the type of surveillance capacity that I, that I believe is truly needed. Um, I think that should include uh, serology during sort of, uh, you know, serology as baseline surveillance on an ongoing basis. It's cheap and easy to collect and gives you a whole history and trajectory of the epidemic. So it's a very powerful public health tool. And then virology as a surveillance mode during in the midst of an outbreak when you're trying to control an outbreak in a setting in a institution and business whatever it might be uh, virology becomes uh, very very important as well so i think having we generally haven't seen the systems there's very few examples that i can think of where there's actually capacity to do that at scale and the type of scale we might need come the fall uh, to control epidemics when and if if and when they start um, so I think, uh, you know, we, we continue to not put the money where we really need to, I think, to make these things work. We continue to sort of neglect public health. Public health has been neglected for many decades uh, in this country, and we still are neglecting it, oddly. We're still, all the laboratories are still privatized, for-profit laboratories, for the most part. Um, and there hasn't been a tremendous effort to really build up infrastructure in the way that we need to develop a, a true surveillance system that can actually stop outbreaks. Um, so I, I think that come the fall, we are still going to be in a pretty bad position and it might be worse because in general, society isn't going to want to close down again. And frankly, I don't think society can close down to the same extent without enormous subsidies and trillions of dollars of appropriations from Congress to go out to the general public uh, to keep their storefronts open and food on the table. And so that all being said, I think we, we've shown that we have very little capacity to save and protect uh, the elderly and vulnerable, even during periods of shutdown. And I, I think none of it bodes well for the fall. Thank you. Um, next question. Um, what are the odds if you step out your front door into the open air leaving your house or your apartment building, what are your odds of getting a serious infection walking down the street? Put it in terms of numbers per thousand. One per thousand? Uh, you mean per, per thousand uh, walks out of my front door? Uh, yeah. I would say, uh, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> that's, why difficult. I'm, that's why I'm asking it. Well, I think uh, where I live, there are very few people uh, walking. I have a pretty quiet road here, and I think I could probably walk out uh, probably 10,000 times and not, uh, not get an infection. Uh, if I was in New York City, I might say, you know, on Broadway or something, I might say something very different. Uh, around. I've got a follow-up question. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have an office up here in, uh, in Lowell where I do my science writing and my science editing and I look out uh, the window and Lowell is not the best educated uh, town and I see uh, a lot of uh, really old people, they look to be about 60 to 65, carrying their groceries home from the market basket by hand because they don't have cars and they're, they're wearing these huge black masks. And from what I understand, the odds of actually getting infected in the open air are very slim. 
And I want to go down and talk to these people and say, give yourself a break. Your odds of actually being hurt walking home from the supermarket are close to zero. Would you do that to them? If, the, if you watch these old people walking in their groceries home while wearing masks, would you intervene and say, really, don't do that? Uh, no, no, I, I think masks are, uh, are not harmful uh, in general. I think that um, they are useful They're, without being, you know, it's not like a medicine or, a, you know, it's something that can have severe side effects. I think that in general, you know, if somebody is, if it's, you know, extraordinarily hot out and somebody's in the middle of an open park with nobody around them, I would certainly say, you know, you can take off your mask, relax for a little bit. But certainly if you're walking back from Market Basket, it's not just for protecting that individual. I think it's also, uh, there are a lot of individuals who nobody knows where that individual has been. Uh, and they don't know who, where the other individuals that are walking past them have been. And so I think, you know, as long as you're in a populated area um, and walking next to people or across from people, I do think that you may as well wear a mask at this point in time, in particular, if you are uh, older, well, no, I, I would say just anyone, but if you're worried about your own safety, certainly individuals who are older will be the, should, should maybe be paying attention even more. One final question, then I'll let them go. Mm -hmm. um, do you think, what do you think of the, um, the psychological effect of a society in which uh, almost everybody in the open air is masked and cannot see each other's faces and cannot have each other's faces seen? Is anybody doing research on that, sir? Uh, so I, it's, it gets out of my comfort zone scientifically, but I've thought about it. Um, and I, I think it's interesting because there, there are places in this world that have a, a more of a history of, of wearing masks on a regular basis in, in East Asia in particular. And, um, uh, but I do, I do, you know, it's certainly something that, that warrants study. And, you know, if this is going to be a long-term thing of wearing masks, uh, you know, for, for years and, and, you know, I don't, really see that as the case. Uh, but it could have psychological effects. I mean, our facial expressions are extraordinarily important to how we, um, how we socialize and, and the type of signals we get. And in particular, that since we're not used to wearing masks as a society that we're used to interpreting. And so um, I think it's important to research to be done. It's a very interesting question. You don't know who's doing it, though. You don't know anybody who is doing that. I don't know anyone working on the psychology of mask wearing, no, but it, it really is fascinating. I hadn't thought about it too much in that, in that sense, and it's really an interesting question. All done. Thank you. Next question. Uh, hey, uh, Michael, just a question on the data. Um, I just wonder how reliable any of these data are on the prevalence, and by that I mean like the Hopkins data are completely meaningless because they're not adjusted for testing levels, right? And I say that as a Hopkins grad. Um, and also, like, look at Florida. They're, they're just completely non-random samples, right? They just take whatever comes in. That's the lamppost effect from statistics, right? You lose your keys on the street, but you look under the lamp in the park for them because that's where the light is. And then 
Also, the time series is not non-random in the same way twice. It would be weird if it were. And just one final thing on Florida. They have this footnote. If a person is positive and negative in the same day, only the positive is counted. So, um, you know, you can multiply that across all the states. How do we, like, what, what, as journalists or policy people or market people, like, what data should we look at to really understand the prevalence? I don't think Florida is meaningful at all for the reasons I just stated and also the Hopkins data. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that uh, viral data, viral testing data is, from a true prevalence, historical prevalence perspective, it's extraordinarily difficult to make any sense of it. Um, we know that testing has been off. We can look at, um, you know, as we start to get better ideas of case fatality, of infection fatality rates in the elderly, for example, or across the populace, we could start using hospitalizations and case fatality to, to sort of back calculate the ex expected number of case of true infections uh, that might have led to that, to what we can detect. And this is sort of ascertainment bias and, and sampling bias and, and reporting bias all wrapped up with this epidemic. Um, and I do think it's become very, very difficult. I think the only real way to understand, uh, to understand prevalence and historical prevalence and epidemic trajectory is to do very high quality representative sampling for serological testing. Uh, and of course, as the first question today or second question uh, pointed out, that might also not be perfect, but at least we can adjust for, uh, we can adjust for biological features if we know, for example, that 8% of, of people who get infected, this is a random number, the, made up, but 8% of people who get infected don't develop good antibody responses that are detectable. We can account for that. Um, but I do think we need to be, be paying very close attention to how we're doing the sampling, uh, what type of representative sampling we're doing, and using, uh, using these tools um, you know, to, to really try to do the best, make the best inference on, on prevalence and epidemic trajectories so that we can actually devise risk maps and understand where, what populations are at greatest risk, which aren't, you know, which ones are showing up in the hospital at greater numbers because there's actually been more cases versus because the comorbidities in that community are higher. So these all speak to the need to do well-representative sampling. Uh, very similar to how we understand that uh, political campaigns need to sample representatively if they want to get a, an unbiased. Right, right. Okay, do, and do you know of a website that's actually doing that, like a, a pure, a, a, a real random, ongoing random study, or like that we could actually look at to understand what's actually happening, or or this just doesn't exist? It doesn't. I have just one other quick question. Yeah, so it doesn't exist at the moment. We are starting. Uh, we just um, had a press release last week that we're starting a study to do just this, and we're we're it's my I'm a PI on it, and I'm partnering with um, some economists and a clinical trials company called TrialSpark. And we are, we're all partnering to bring these different facets in, logistics, economic, sort of political theory to create these representative samples, and then me on the immunology and epidemiology side to do just that. But it's expensive to build them, and, and we're just getting it started now. Is that going to be proprietary or public? 
No, once we start getting the data in, it will be public. Uh, as okay, that's great. And just, Michael, just real quick, and I'm sorry, Nicole, I just had one other quick one. You mentioned something. I think I heard you say that the, what really matters is the T cell level for immunity. So wh the question is, why aren't we then testing for T cell and not antibody? Wouldn't that make a lot of sense? Just to be clear, friend on the phone, I was saying that that okay. is potentially something that can matter. Uh, it doesn't necessarily indicate more or less. It's it's on a what we've seen in measles is that T cells are really what's required to finally clear the virus from somebody. But I would I would say that the the that both are important. Antibodies are just a lot a lot easier and cheaper to get. If you want to test the population for T cells, you have to do a full phlebotomy. You have to spin down their cells, pull it. It's very expensive per person, whereas antibodies can right. be very cheap. Okay, got it. Thanks very much. Thanks for your patience. And by the way, please put those data up as soon as you can, because I'd love to be able to follow that. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for your patience. Thanks. Um, next question. Hi, guys. Thank you uh, very much for doing this. Appreciate it. Uh, doctor, I know you've talked about this a little bit uh, at the beginning and throughout, but can you just comment generally on the overall rise in cases in the U.S. and where you see the issues and what you, what you see as, as the main driver behind this? Uh, uh, I think the main driver uh, is uh, is um, apathy towards the virus, and and there's a, a whole. There are a lot of people who um, who uh, did not necessarily see the damage done by the virus um, when it was here. Uh, I mean, it's it never left in their immediate environment, and eventually have just gotten to the point where they're saying, oh, it doesn't really matter very much. Um, and this is, uh, I, I've been worried about this the whole time. I remember saying to uh, some, some senators uh, earlier on, back in March or April, they called me up and said, you know, what, should, what can our offices do at the national level and things like that. And, and one of the things I said was to use their platforms and their voices to, to make it abundantly clear to the populace that the absence of virus in their community doesn't mean that this is not a dangerous virus. It doesn't mean that the virus isn't potentially spreading there. That the absence, when they close everything down, the absence of the virus means that they're succeeding in keeping it at bay. I don't think that message has gotten well across to people, uh, in particular in certain places in this country. And I unfortunately think that now, as a result, we see a lot of people saying, oh, you know, the virus yeah, there's been a lot of media about it, but the virus isn't important. And that is maybe leading a lot of people to, you know, people just get tired of, of social distancing, rightly so. And, um, and I think that we're seeing people sort of swing the pendulum. They're going out in full force and, and going to restaurants in some places, not wearing masks, sort of rebelling against the idea even, which I think unfortunately comes back to a different question where it has been a little bit politicized or a lot um, politicized. And, um, and, and so I think that that's a major reason. A lot of people, you know, if you're, unless you're working in the hospitals, you're not going to see, or you have a family member who is sick, you're not going to see the ramifications of this virus. And that is always the plight of public health. Um, the more you do to protect the public, the more they, they don't realize that you exist protecting the public. And that includes just policies. Uh, so if you 
do a lot to social distance everyone and put really clear policies in place that will stop transmission, then people will start to think that it was an overblown reaction and they'll swing the pendulum the other way. It's sort of normal behavior. We see it with vaccine, re with vaccine refusals now and many other items uh, in public health. And it's a common predicament that we get ourselves in. The more successful you are, the more people don't recognize how important policies are. I think you you mentioned this earlier, but just what are the uh, what is your fear for the fall then, given the situation as it exists now? My fear is that we're going to have uncontrolled epidemics that uh, explode and overwhelm health systems. Uh, frankly, um, uh, my fear is that we can have a lot of states working very diligently to. Uh, get cases to very low levels to a point where people might feel safe traveling again with all the precautions taken, but that there's going to be states, there's going to be such large outbreaks in, in many states that, that no airport will be safe to travel from. You know, th those, are, those are my fears. I, I have been, I just had my, my brother called me yesterday and ask, you know, could he, should he plan to fly to my dad's house in, in a few months? And you know, the short answer was, well, the area that he might be flying from might have very low transmission rates, uh, but he will have to transfer through, a through an airport that undoubtedly will have a mixture of people uh, from many states, in particular, potentially from the states that are taking this less seriously uh, and where cases are growing, they might be the people more apt to be flying. And so I, I think that, you know, the problem with infectious diseases is they don't uh, they don't, uh, they, they, they neglect borders. And so, um, you know, as long as outbreaks are spreading anywhere, that nobody is really safe. Uh, and in particular, within a given country, uh, they, they spread very easily because there's even more limited borders and things like that. So, um, so that, that's my concern is that the more we see cases, the, the, the longer it will be before life can sort of go back to some semblance of normal. And, uh, and I worry that, uh, that tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people will continue dying. Thank you very much for this, I appreciate it. Next question. Hey, Dr. Mina, thank you for taking questions. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, a testing technique that's getting a bit of attention. Um, Doc, Scott Gottlieb, a few others have started highlighting it as we move into the fall. Uh, pooling um, test results. So the idea that you, know, you could take samples from 50 employees and sort of mix them all together. And if you get a positive sign, well then and only then do you have to do individual testing. Um, how ready is that technique? Are there any technical or, uh, uh, you know, statistical challenges with it? Would just like to get your, your thoughts on, you know, if that's a really solid uh, approach that, that we're going to be seeing. Yeah, so we published a, a paper um, on this pretty recently, or it's, it's in an archive, it's in Med Archive right now. Um, and it's, it's under review at a journal. Um, but looking at this statistically evaluated in the role of pooling, what's the benefit, what's the cost, what are the logistical challenges? Uh, it's, a very, it's a very powerful technique. I, 
suggest that as many laboratories that can do it, um, think about doing it. There are some, there are, but there are logistical challenges that will cause many or most or essentially uh, pr practically all labs from doing it. And um, uh, the, the number one thing that people get concerned about, which I actually think is, is not uh, as important, is that as you start to pool samples together, you dilute them out and you might lose sensitivity. The reality is though, as a screening mechanism, you can, if, you, if it means that you can get through many, many more tests, uh, then that subtle loss in sensitivity, which might actually be negligible, depending on how many samples you're pooling. If you're just pooling 10 samples, the, the loss in sensitivity from an infectious disease outbreak control perspective will be negligible for the most part. And, um, and so I think that it can be extremely powerful to save money, to save resources, to save time. Uh, there are logistical hurdles where if you get a positive pool, uh, if, the, if the laboratory only receives a tube that was already, that was pre-pooled, then you have to essentially, you get that positive and then do you have to call all 20 of those people up and tell them all to stay in their houses that one of them might be infected uh, or, you know, and, and then you're having people who are very anxious uh, who need to get re-swabbed uh, somehow safely, and one of them will be positive, for example. The other option uh, is if you send all of the samples to a laboratory and they do the pooling, but then that pooling process uses an, an immense amount of labor and resources to put everything together, keep track of it, and then if you get a positive pool, you need to deconvolute it all. And that all slows a high-throughput lab down tremendously. Uh, so there are serious logistical hurdles. I think when resources are the limiting factor that these approaches should absolutely be considered. And in general, in the United States right now, resources are a limiting factor. Um, time is a limiting factor. Speed uh, is a limiting factor. And so we need to take all this into account, uh, but it can be very, very powerful. In particular for institutions now, we're seeing universities and businesses um, trying to figure out uh, this is a different question whether or not I agree with this approach, but many places are now considering testing everyone three times or, or everyone every three days, for example. And that builds up to millions and millions of dollars very quickly. And if you can pool and bring that to hundreds of thousands of dollars, that would be much better for most institutions. Um, we're also working with ministries of health in Africa in various countries to essentially bring these same ideas to them. After we published our preprint, we got a number of, of interested ministers of health asking, you know, they, saying essentially we have X many tests and, and 10 times the number of people we need to test every day in our country. How do we do, do this? And so we're seeing it already being rolled out in, uh, in, uh, in under-resourced countries as anticipated. Great. And, and one, just one follow-up turning to the, the serological testing. Um, you know, I, I know you're, a little more, um, you know, confident or bullish on on their value, their usefulness. But when do you think we will be able to to use these in in a practical sense to make decisions about returning people to school or to work, or or you know, just to have some confidence of, of their immunity? Is it something that you think will be ready by the fall, or or when? Uh, are, so is your question about individual level immune protection? Correct, yeah. 
So I, I am, um, in many ways, I think to be able to take a measurement from somebody and say, you're protected at this level, it's going to be, is going to remain difficult. I think what we can say um, soon, if not today, is that in general, people are not getting infected twice. And if they do, you know, it's very rare. I was recently on a phone call with somebody who had, who has been infected twice and, uh, you know, both times very severely, but I, but probably she had uh, uh, an immune deficiency or something along those lines. And uh, so in general, I think we can start to say if somebody's been symptomatic with this virus once, uh, you know, we, we see that they're not getting it again and it's behaving like other viruses, but we don't know how long it will last. We don't, ex we don't have a number of antibodies to pin uh, on somebody at this point, but I do think that the data is now coming in fairly quickly uh, some of it's um, true follow-up, and we're, we're looking at protection, sort of relative risk of getting an infection um, over time if you've already been infected once versus not, or based on stratification of antibody numbers. Um, so I think probably, you know, in the next few months, we'll, have, we'll continue having a better and better idea. There won't be a silver bullet where we say, aha, here's the number, um, but we will continue edging closer to that. Um, I think we can use serology, though, even without understanding the individual level sort of responses needed. I think if we can at least take a step back and say we believe that people who have been infected are largely at least more protected than other people who haven't been infected, then all of a sudden we can use this even today. We can use this as a powerful tool as we start to think, uh, you know, especially as more and more people get infected and the seroprevalence increases, we'll be able to use those numbers to our advantage to start grouping people in ways that make the most sense to stop or at least mitigate potential outbreaks. If you have a whole bunch of people who are otherwise evenly just, or, uh, uh, able to do a given job, maybe you mix people who are susceptible with people who have already been infected on both sides so that both of these communities or groups of people uh, you don't have any one group that is fully susceptible. For example, you, you try to like build your herd immunity in a, in a very um, smart way. So I think that we can start using that for nursing homes, how you necessarily, if you know, all nurses, like if you consider that the nursing staff is the same, or all equally able to deal with patients, maybe you want to prioritize people who have already been infected to, uh, to work with the susceptibles in, in some ratio. Uh, because they would be less likely to bring a, a new infection in, for example. So I think that there's ways that we can use this information today and we'll continue building up more information into the future. Great, thank you. Next question. Yeah, hi again, thanks. Um, I had a question on um, children. Uh, I was curious if we're any closer to understanding what children's role in transmission is of COVID, and do you think we need to better understand that in order to know how to proceed with school reopenings in August and September? So we are trying to understand it as quickly as possible. Um, it's a hard thing to understand, uh, to, to, un to get at very quickly, especially because it's summertime, a lot of places have been shut down beforehand. Uh, we know that um, there was at least one uh, report, I forget where I read it, um, uh, that when schools opened in France in one area, there were an increased number of cases. 
I think in general we have seen that we've seen that children can uh, can grow this virus to very high titers, very sim with similar distributions of viral titers as adults. Um, so therefore, we believe that children can certainly transmit the virus. Uh, the question we have is, what is their relative risk of transmitting it versus an adult? Um, but you know, even if their individual level risk is lower, children group together in such higher numbers that it might uh, they they can become a much greater reservoir for infections and a trans sort of an overall force of transmission could become very high from children. So it's something that is um, extremely concerning to epidemiologists, myself included. Um, you know, I think about it it, it, it touches on everything, not just the parents who might get sick if, if spread happens within a school, but the school bus drivers, um, the, the principals and teachers in the school, the community at large, the, the kids who are looked after by their grandparents. Um, you know, there's a tremendous number of risks that can occur if children turn out to be pretty high vectors of transmission. And um, you know, even if they're not the primary mode or the primary population that's transmitting, um, there's, a, there's a good likelihood that they might at least transmit substantially. And uh, some of our um, mathematical modeling would suggest that they likely do transmit, ha have some role, and um, it's going to be a, a big challenge to keep, uh, to keep kids from, from transmitting it. Knowing that, do you think we should not be opening schools in a traditional manner come August? I think we should be considering how to do it safely. I think there are a lot of things that we can do to safeguard um, teachers. I, I think it's one of the most vexing problems that we have right now. Um, children, you know, will they be compliant with masks, especially the youngest ones? Uh, but the, the point is, if we can't get them back to school, we can't get parents back to work, and we can't function uh, appropriately uh, as a society. And we, we, you know, school, whether it's school or daycare, um, either way, we need to get the children away from the parents to allow parents to work and to allow children to have normal social development. And um, uh, I don't have a good answer at the moment for what we should do. I, I think that we should take this and consider it as one of the most serious questions that needs to be answered right now. Uh, if I could chime in real quick, uh, we're gonna have Dr. Joseph Allen on the call tomorrow and he has written up a, uh, a paper uh, or a working paper on reopening schools safely. So he will be able to answer a lot more questions about that tomorrow. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, Dr. Minna. Uh, I'll try to be brief and quick. Um, there are some people who are believing that COVID-19 deaths are being undercounted, um, either inflated to generate hospital revenue or otherwise uh, for political purposes and or ignoring underlying health conditions that might be a cause. Um, so, and then there's an investigations uh, by researchers and journalists that show otherwise. Curious your thoughts on uh, how this is being counted, if it's being counted properly. I don't think cases are being inflated at all. I think if anything, you know, true numbers of infections are underreported. Um, uh, this is not uh, a political, you know, th th this, is, this is a real virus. It's affecting people in every country. It's not um, some, some contrived media 
uh, issue. It, it's um, we see very similar things happening everywhere in the world right now, with devastating effects. And um, anyone who thinks otherwise, you know, I, I think really has to get out of their social media bubbles. Yeah. Quick, quick follow. Um, I've I've just heard something called um, uh, the epidemiological assessment of causality called the counterfactual. Um, could you explain that briefly? Well, so the counterfactual is is essentially a, a tool, or it's um, uh, it takes different meanings in different um, areas. But essentially, what it means is. Um, what is the, the counterfactual is something that did not factually happen, but that we believe would have happened if we did something different. So if, if that was vaccines, we, we add vaccines into the populace and cases go down. Uh, but before we added the vaccine, cases were horizontally distributed over time. Then the counterfactual would be taking that horizontal line and continuing it into the future and being able to use that as a comparator against the factual um, thing that happened over that same period of time when the vaccines drove cases down. Uh, in the case of COVID-19, uh, the counterfactual would be what would have happened uh, if we did not close down uh, society you know, in, in March. And, um, and we, might have, we might have mathematical projections that would show cases going much higher how do we not close things down? That would be a counterfactual. We use it to calculate um, what was the efficacy or benefit. It's one tool that we could use to calculate sort of the effect of policy decisions. And real quick, if someone has diabetes or heart disease and they die with COVID-19, uh, do they die of COVID-19? Uh, at this point, I would say that if somebody's been living with um, heart disease and diabetes, and they die at the and they have COVID nineteen in their system. I would uh, SARS CoV two in their in their system. I would suggest that yes, they died of SARS CoV two of COVID nineteen disease. However, it was probably exacerbated by underlying conditions. Thank you. Appreciate that. Next question. Uh, hi. Uh, good morning, and thanks for taking our questions this morning. Uh, here in Illinois, in Chicago, Cook County, and, and the state at large, uh, they're just really getting started uh, with contracts to start doing contact uh, tracing, even though the governor, uh, the mayor, and so forth has said how important that will be uh, to reopening and, and really just targeting uh, high-risk uh, areas because they, they're nowhere near this 30 uh, per 100,000 people number, although they're trying to get close uh, to that. Are you concerned at all? Uh, and I don't know how much different it is in other states. I don't think maybe Massachusetts ahead, but are you concerned in general with the levels of contact tracing that are going on? And how important is that to preventing future flare-ups? Uh, so I think contact tracing is very important. If you get cases low enough, it can be extremely important to be able to um, monitor, to, to, to stop outbreaks as they're getting started. And uh, so it's very, very important um, to have those un, in, in, to have those systems set up. But you first need to get cases low enough so that you can stay on top of the outbreaks when they're starting. If, you're, if you throw contact tracing, into the middle of a raging fire or big outbreak, 
um, you're probably not going to catch up unless you have in, immense uh, resources and people to, to do that. Uh, but this virus spreads very quickly. So I think that it's very important, but it, it, it has its greatest impact when you get cases low enough so that you can really be tackling one small fire at a time. Uh, otherwise, it's, uh, you know, it's very similar to, um, it's similar to a forest fire. If you have a forest fire and, the, and you're, if you have small fires burning, you can go and, and have somebody go and put out one fire. And if they see a spark fly over there, they, they, that one person puts it out again and again. Um, but the moment it turns into a, a big, uh, a true forest fire, that one person is, even a team of people are going to do very little. You need to essentially blanket the whole place with helicopters and jets dropping, you know, planes dropping massive amounts of water and chemicals. Um, and that's akin to us closing down. It's a, you have to eventually take a big hammer and try to stamp it out uh, rather than doing this very targeted contact tracing approach. All right, that answers my question. Thank you. Sure. Do we have time for one more or are we out of time? It's uh, up I'll to you. One very quick one. Okay. Hey, I know you hate to do this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, and I also know it's unknowable. Um, but what are the odds of a major outbreak in the fall? Put some odds on that, please, on a scale of 1 to 100. Thank you. Uh, at this rate, 85%. <laughs> wow, that's high. Okay, thanks very much. Well, well I want to clarify, I mean, we're, we already have a major outbreak going on. So it would be ama amazing if by the fall we stop it. Uh, I hope Didn't we have one. Yeah, um, exactly. And the weather goes against us. It's out of our favor at that point. Okay, thanks a lot. Great call. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye, everyone. Thanks. This concludes the June 22nd press conference.